Thank you for joining me on the Fred Packard Show. Today, I am interviewing Joshua Warner. Josh is a horror author. Much more than just that, I'll have him introduce himself here in a second, but uh, Josh is publishing a book through Source Point Press called The Winchester Mystery House, and I am excited to dive into this one for all you horror fans. So how you been, dude? Busy, busy. Right now, it's uh, just all the crunch time before New York Comic Con, all the last minute <clears throat> signage and marketing and exclusive printing and all that crap. It's nuts. Yeah, you guys are about to, to roll over there, huh? Yeah, yeah, we're leaving on Monday. And you're, you're the official uh, sponsor of New York Comic Con. Yeah, it's kind of uh, <laughs> kind of intense. There's It's going to be a, a pretty big booth. Um, there's going to be around 15 tables. Oh, wow. It's booth depending on how our final setup ends up going. So it's, um, yeah, it's going to be awesome. That's, 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 that's amazing, man. Um, so why don't, why don't you introduce yourself, let people know um, who you are, what you do, uh, a little background on yourself if you could. Sure. So uh, I am Josh Warner, and I'm the chief creative officer for Oxide Media, which is the parent company of Deepwater Games and SourcePoint Press and N3 Art and Design, which is basically means we're one big company that does books, comic books, graphic novels, board games, card games, uh, gaming accessories, play mats, art prints, uh, and the like. And, uh, and, and movies. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and sometimes we, we dabble in other entertainment medias. We have one live action film out um that's available that's you know on blu-ray and streaming platforms right now and then we have other things in various stages of early development so uh yeah fingers crossed that um that that keeps rolling yeah man yeah and you had your own uh book just recently come out right yeah so uh i've been writing a miniseries called the winchester mystery house which is based on a, a true um true story but it also has a lot of supernatural lore in it as well um and it's pretty famous it's based on one of the most haunted mansions in the world it's like a big uh a big attraction people travel from all over to go visit in san jose california and um and there's uh, a movie about it um uh, you can watch it on netflix called winchester and um it's pretty exciting the book actually issue one doesn't come out until october 27th but there is an ash can that's out in the wild and also uh, next week at New York Comic Con, there will be um, an, a, a variant cover, an exclusive variant cover at New York Comic Con. So those people will actually be able to read the whole first issue before everybody else. That's awesome, man. Um, I'm not familiar with the Winchester story. What is some of the lore, I guess, behind, behind Winchester without spoiling the book? Obviously. <laughs> no problem. So there was um, uh, the Winchester Repeating Arms Company um, made this particular rifle, which became just absolutely revolutionary. Um, it's, it really, it changed the game in everything. So it became um, uh, widely used in the civil war and, uh, and kind of turned the tides of that war. Um, it was, it could fire so much faster than other guns that um, everyone wanted one. Uh, and so it, the sales were just through the roof. Um, it was called the gun that won the West. It was used kind of in our expansion westward. Um, and they even made like an old uh, movie with Jimmy Stewart about the gun. Um, it's uh, it, the, the 50% owner of the company 
um, he died and he, pa he, he it passed on to his son. And his son had just married Sarah uh, Lockwood Pardee, now after that known as Sarah Winchester. And um, they, had, um, they had a baby and she then passed away uh, at a very young age. And then the dad passed away, leaving 50% of the Winchester Repeating Arm Company to Sarah, who, um, who did a lot of interesting and strange things in her grief. Uh, and the biggest one is she moved westward uh, from the East Coast all the way to California. And she started taking all of this inheritance money, which she was getting a huge amount of money per month. Uh, and she started sinking it into this little tiny farmhouse that she bought and started growing it and expanding it. And construction went on and on in this house for 30 years without ever stopping day, night, weekends, like all seasons. The construction continued for decades uh, and it just turned into this big sprawling labyrinth. Sometimes she would have entire wings knocked down and rebuilt and rooms were done four or five times over again, as long as the construction never stopped. And uh, a lot of people believe that her reasons for this were that um, she thought that she was cursed um, by all of the spirits of those who had been killed at the hands of the Winchester rifle. So um, she believes that's what had, you know, taken her husband, taken her child and was now coming for her. And this house, um, they call it the house that spirits built, uh, is some believed meant to house the spirits or appease them somehow um, because there was this, all these rooms that nobody lived in. Um, so they thought that she was building the rooms for those who had been killed. And uh, uh, there is a famous seance room within the house um, that she's said to have gone to every night at midnight and she would uh, alone and she would go to the seance room where she would get her instructions for what would be built the following day. So every single day there was a new set of instructions given to the foreman by Sarah through word of mouth and, and light sketches. There were really no blueprints or anything like that. And what's, amazing is that the architecture of this house is just absolutely fascinating. There's uh, not all, not all of the house makes sense. Um, there are some things that there are doors that lead to drop-offs, uh, whether it be outside or inside, you could fall two stories within and fall into like a kitchen sink. Um, there is a staircase that ends at a ceiling. Um, there's a lot of eccentricities. There's a window that's on the floor. Um, so they had to put a you know guardrail around it so you don't fall through it. Uh, and it's ever since her death, um, a lot of people have experienced a lot of paranormal things. It's been on Ghost Hunters and a ton of, of famous shows. And, um, and people, a lot of, of, of paranormal experts and mediums, they travel there all the time to do tours of the house. And I've been partnering with the, um, with the Winchester Mystery House, which is the, what the actual name of the estates and it's a place, real place people can go visit. And, um, trying to tell Sarah's story um, as accurately and respectfully as possible. And it's been so much fun, man. I can't tell you how much I've been enjoying it. Yeah, that, that sounds, that's one hell of a story, man. So I'm familiar with the Winchester rifle. I had no idea it was tied to the Winchester mystery house, which I guess in hindsight, that makes sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, I did hear that, you know, the gun that won the West uh, or won the Civil War or what have you. Um, 
and the sand did you get a chance to go inside the sand room i did yeah so i went out there on i went out there on a friday the 13th which was a really special day for them um for a, a few reasons so they uh sarah had this this bell tower this was like famous legendary bell tower that would be rang at midnight every night and it was to tell all the people all the workers um uh, because they were working around the clock that sarah was to be left alone because it was time for her to go to the seance room and when she passed away um they they swore to never ring the bell again except for any days on the calendar that happened to fall on friday the 13th on any friday the 13th they ring the bell 13 times on the 13th hour so 1 p.m and um that is a tradition that's been held for ages now and it's basically to pay tribute to sarah's love and kind of obsession with the number 13 which appears throughout the house in so many different ways uh hidden in amongst rooms in certain construction there's a, there's 13 items up here almost uh constantly um and so while I was there um, visiting the house, uh, they let me be the guest bell ringer. So uh, I got to go stand in the bell tower and ring the bell 13 times. I have to say there was the pressure. There was a lot of pressure. <laughs> I was feeling it. Uh, <laughs> one, I was running really late and they told me, they said, you, we cannot ring this bell late. It has never, ever been rang late. It will ring on the 13th hour exactly with or without you. Somebody else will do it. Uh, and a lot of the people who work there, um, they actually don't get to touch the bell either. They have a historian who comes and rings the bell. So it's a really big honor to let me ring it when like even the general manager of the entire property has never gotten to ring the bell. Um, so I was running late. I felt terrible, like a jerk. I jumped out of a moving car and booked it and had somebody like, uh, yank me through the house, through, through rooms that weren't open on the tour to get you know, the fastest route to the bell tower. I got there just in time for them to start a live stream while the historian is telling me, okay, you're going to stand here. You're going to lean over this. You're going to pull this down, but whatever you do, don't fall forward because if you do, you're going to fall through this pane of glass and you're going to go about two stories down. It's pretty dangerous. I'm like, Oh, okay. And she said, here's the big one. <laughs> By the time you get to that 13th ring, the bell is swinging quite a bit on its own it will ring a 14th time if you don't stop it from doing so that. And she said, and no one has ever let it ring a 14th time. So to do that, there's two ropes, you know, one and a pulley system, one goes up while the other goes down. You have to grab both ropes simultaneously and hold them perfectly still to stop the bell from being able to swing again. And, uh, and of course I'm counting in my head to make sure I don't screw up and, you know, get the number wrong. And it did. I nailed it. It, did. it only rang 13 times. <laughs> that, that is that is a lot of stress, man. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. We held a, a press event where we unveiled a new product as well, which is a, a game uh, that we're working on. And all the people who were part of the media and the press, they got to try the game out. And then uh, afterwards, we I, I got to go on a tour with all those press people through the house in the dark with flashlights and finally got to step inside the actual seance room and actually see it for myself. Any Anything in there that was kind of like mind-boggling or was it just kind of like a room that was like creepy or like what were like, describe, describe the room for me because I've never been inside an actual seance room. The seance room itself is kind of an, it, it's a very plain looking room, except it has a lot of eccentricities when you start to look up a little closer. So there's one doorway 
that is, just, oh, let's put it this way, there's one entrance. And Sarah was always seen going in that entrance and never seen coming out of it. Um, so when you go in through that door, once you're inside the room, there is another door to your immediate left. But it's, if you were to step through it, you would fall down uh, a couple stories. It's within the house, but you can't actually use the door. So um, there's like a confusing door next to it that you can't come in or out of. And then um, there are cabinets on the wall. And one of the cabinets, if you open it, is actually a secret doorway out of the room. And that's the one that she would, she would leave the room through. Um, so that's pretty interesting. There's also hooks in the room, like coat hooks, and there are 13 of them. If you open one of the cabinets and count, there's a bunch in the cabinets and, and a bunch outside the cabinets. And if you open the cabinets and count them all, there's 13 hooks. And, uh, and the room that you would exit out of if you were Sarah and you were using this secret kind of passage door is a room that's completely unfinished. It's, um, it's never even had walls. It's all just wood, uh, just wooden boards, still have the gaps in between them. There's no walls up, um, no proper flooring. And no one knows why uh, the, the, that room was never finished, except that maybe because it was a secret room, a lot of even the workers probably weren't working on it because they weren't privy to the information that it existed. Um, so there's a lot of different things like that where they think that certain rooms were had secrets so um only small amounts of the crew could you know could work on the construction of them uh it was it's a it's pretty neat though there's something about it there's just a just standing in it that just it's it it feels very cool it doesn't feel creepy uh to me or to a lot of the people who are actually on the tour but what's weird is the unfinished room that you can go through after that through the cabinet feels extremely creepy um and there's other parts of the house like that too there's uh there's some the oldest parts of the house uh, that were kind of the original house within the labyrinth where they kind of built up around it are still there. And a lot of those rooms were never worked on. It was just kind of in the middle of the mansion is a little tiny house <laughs> that they just kind of kept building off of. And those original rooms are the oldest rooms in the whole house. And um, a lot of them really, they look that way too. They, they're even a little bit dilapidated. So let, let me ask you a quick question. So in regards to Sarah, um, I'm assuming you did a ton of research on this. This is obviously, there's a lot of moving parts that goes with a project like this. Like you said, you want to pay, you know, make sure you're respectful to Sarah, her story, tell a truthful story to the best of your knowledge, obviously. Was there any diagnosis, like psychosis diagnosis for Sarah? Did she have anything medical going on with her? Or was she just like extremely paranoid? Or did nobody check her the entire time she's building this house and adding you know windows on you know floors and like like nobody was like hey let me check in like are you all right like there, um there was so there that was kind of the town gossip a lot of the town gossip was that she was not mentally well but these were and she was so private and secretive that she would um had a big huge six-foot hedge all the way around the property a huge fence nobody could even see what she was doing behind there. They just heard the construction noise all the time, but they, they couldn't even really see the house. And most visitors were not welcome at all. Um, so the town, because of this, because she was reclusive and also she refused to have her photo taken. Um, there's only two known photos of her in existence. One when she was young before all this happened. And uh, the other one was, some, uh, was one that was taken uh, by a photographer in secret 
they, they, they got a quick photo of her um, as she was visiting the town in a carriage. And, uh, and it was not, you know, against, you know, it was without her consent. So um, because of that, and because of all the rumors that would spread from this place, uh, and because at the time, spiritualism was at an all-time high, um, there was post-Civil War, everyone had lost someone. So because of that, you know, um, the idea of seances were becoming very popular. So a lot of that lore really was passed down to us through gossip. And a lot of it um, was under the assumption of these people's assumption that she was not mentally well and that she was doing everything out of fear. Uh, but then as you research further and you start finding um, letters and, and things um, that were written by people who were closer to her or knew her or people who knew people who worked on the estate, um, you start to hear the same consistent thing from everyone. And that is, she was, not only was she not crazy, um, that, but she was actually a, a genius. And um, she was super into architecture as well. And a lot, of, um, a lot of the things in the house at the time are inventions that she actually created. Um, because it was such a huge labyrinth, she created communication systems throughout the house. Um, or ahead of the time, she was one of the first people um, to have a fully functioning shower. Um, she uh, she has just some really incredible achievements within the actual house. That um, in some cases they said that she got patented, and other times that she didn't bother to. But she was the first to beat out any patents that are in history. Um, and that it's those kind of stories about her being very sane and very well that leave a lot to the imagination as to well, why, what was her motives for this constant construction? Uh, why did the house look this way? Um, some people, they say that the eccentricities of the house are, they all have some sort of explanation and there's a reason for them. Um, either a, a practical one, such as the window on the floor, one possible practical explanation was that she was actually trying to, um, to move, circulate air from one floor to another because that floor has a conservatory on it. Um, and another possible explanation, I think there's also, if you go straight down further underground, I think there's a boiler there too, where they might've been trying to vent out hot air out of rooms. Um, there's a lot of people uh, think that some of the weird construction stuff was just because they were tearing down rooms uh, and not finishing them. So maybe the staircase that goes nowhere originally did go somewhere and then they built over it um, or the door that drops off the side of the house um, was meant to have a whole nother addition built, but maybe they never got to it by the time that she passed away. The second that she died every, and, and everyone knew, all the workers stopped working immediately and they all left. So whatever state the house was in at that moment is the state that we see today. And it's, um, it's very interesting though, because there's a lot of people who really push for the supernatural side of the story. Um, and, and a lot of people who try to push for a more practical side of the story. Uh, and then there's some in-between stuff that, which we kind of dabble in in the comic book a little bit where a lot of people think that she was, um, she was building something more than a house. They think that she was very into Freemasonry um, and that while they didn't allow any female Freemasons in the U.S. at the time, um, they did in France. And right before, right after her husband died, she, she took on all this wealth. 
She spent four years traveling Europe before she came back to the U.S. and then started building this labyrinth. And, uh, and a lot of people think that she spent time with the Freemasons in France there and that the house is meant to have a bunch of hidden symbolism and even puzzles within it that are meant to be solved by us long after she's gone and that none of us have been able to kind of piece it all together. Uh, and that that might be the explanation for some of the symbolism that she's hidden in the house throughout a bunch of uh, stained glass windows, why the number 13 is so prevalent. Um, she seems to have a big uh, interest in Francis Bacon and Shakespeare, and both of which uh, pop up in different places in the house. It's, um, I think what's the most interesting thing about it is that it truly is a mystery. Like no one for sure knows all of her motivations. You know, so I, I just did some, some quick research on this. So she was buried next to her husband and their infant child in Evergreen Cemetery, right? Yeah. She left a will written in 13 sections, yeah. which was signed 13 times. So she, <laughs> very, very interesting. And then it's not, it looks like they auctioned off almost everything um, of her inheritance. Did she ever have any kind of like, uh, after her husband died, after her child died, um, did she ever have another romantic relationship again? Or was she just pretty much kind of solo living in this house and then people working on it? Never again. She um, was never seen outside of her mourning wear for the rest of her life. So she wore a veil every day uh, and a black dress every day. Um, she did develop some close friendships with um, some of her longtime employees that worked there for years and years. Um, uh, there's, they're portrayed in the comic book too. Um, although we've changed their names, um, they uh, are based on you know, actual you know the ideas of real people. But uh, her foreman, who ran her orchards and ran all of her construction crews, um, he was a dear friend. He was one of the few people who was allowed to live. He didn't live in the house, but he lived on the property. Um, she built a house for him right there on the property, so that he was always a very short walk from the house. Uh, and he, he had a family there. He, um, uh, he had a dog and a wife and kids. Um, her gardener, um, who was the head of a team of like 20-something people, um, uh, he was there a long time, and he also lived on the grounds. Um, and then her closest friend in the world, she had a couple, um, a couple maids, too, that, that were very close with her, especially later in life. But her closest friend in the world was her niece, um, her niece, Marion. Uh, who she called uh, Daisy as a nickname. Uh, that was her sister's daughter, sister Isabel, who also lived in California. Uh, she came to live with her aunt and she kind of spoke for her. She was like, uh, like the big boss of the house. She would, she would speak for her aunt on her aunt's behalf. She would give instructions and orders to the crew and the foreman. And um, uh, she was very close and very protective of her. And they were dear friends. Um, uh, right up until she got married and, and left and moved out. Uh, in the movie, um, which takes place a while after all that, uh, in the movie, I think they did some fictitious rewriting to include her. The niece is a big part of the story. And at that point, she has moved back into the house with her young son um, in the movie. And uh, it's, it's, that's it, though. She, otherwise, she, was, she would barely even talk to people. Um, she didn't have very many visitors uh, except for her lawyer. Um, she would write some letters and she would make a lot of anonymous charitable donations 
Uh, and sometimes she would have her driver go in and make charitable donations while she would wait in the carriage and she would, you know, go out into the world in this carriage. But, but otherwise she was very secretive and super private. Okay. Um, all right. So let me, let me ask you a couple other quick questions here. I know uh, heavy for a few more minutes, but um, in terms of horror, what, like, where did you find your love for it? Cause I know that's a very, kind of seems like it's a growing genre. More people are getting into horror. Uh, you know, how did you get your start into this, into the side of things? Um, way back. So I started, I started writing uh, prose, uh, short horror stories in 2003. And, um, and then it wasn't long after that, that I ended up, uh, I published, I also published my first book while that book wasn't it's long out of print. Nobody can get it now. But that book wasn't horror. It definitely was pretty intense at times. And then shortly after, I published a collection of my horror stories. Uh, and as I was writing horror at that time, I was also getting a lot of freelance illustration jobs in the horror genre. And I had started doing um, concept art and storyboards for indie horror flicks. Uh, and that ended up landing me my first, uh, first convention which I think was, it was a guest spot too, free table. I think it was 2004, um, either 2004 or 2005, right around there. And uh, at a horror convention. And after that, I just kind of fell in love with horror conventions and the genre and, um, and wanted to keep doing more work in it. So um, I ended up doing a lot of horror illustration work after that. And then eventually coming back around to writing more horror too. And, uh, and yeah, now I'm still dabbling in it on top of, you know, just trying to take care of everybody else's projects and I'm still sticking my feet in the water when I can. And, and it kind of leads me to this question. Um, you know, what would you say is your most, I don't want to say influential, I guess, what's your top five horror books? Like if you were to point somebody like, Hey, you know what, new, new to the genre, like I want to get into horror or I've always been kind of interested in seeing, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a chicken, but I don't mind getting scared on, uh, occasionally. What would be like your five recommendations, I guess, for somebody trying to break into re either reading a comic book or a novel uh, for, for horror? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so some staples, I think everyone should read Steve Niles' 30 Days of Night graphic novel with art by Ben Temple Smith. Um, it's for those who don't know, it was made into a, a live action movie, um, starring Josh Hartnett and that was pretty popular for a while, but graphic novel is fantastic. Um, uh, I highly recommend, um, reading some Clive Barker novels, not just watching movie adaptations, but checking, checking out his novels, especially those who, that were never adapted in anything. My favorite Clive Barker book is one of his early ones called, uh, the damnation game. Uh, that is a phenomenal novel, and it blows my mind that they never made it into a movie. Um, obviously, uh, Stephen King is, uh, I'm still, you know, constantly reading Stephen King and rereading Stephen King. And I always highly recommend uh, any of his horror work, especially if you start off early in his career. And like his first, very first book, Carrie, uh, you know, is phenomenal, still holds up to this day. His second book, Salem's Lot, still holds up to this day. It's a little long-winded, but otherwise it's really good. Um, and it kind of really created its own genre of, of horror that we now 
see in pop culture everywhere, like that, you know, Stephen King did with those early novels, especially that small town horror. Um, otherwise, I recommend checking out uh, if you're into classic horror, like um, like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, Gary Reed wrote uh, a phenomenal uh, a phenomenal graphic novel called Renfield, and it's um it's 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 not so much a retelling of Dracula as it is an adjacent story that, that overlaps really well with the novel. Um, it's expertly written, so good. It's definitely one of his classics. It was you know it's published by just about everybody published it at some point or another. Desperado, Image, Caliber, obviously. Um, highly recommend everybody check that out. Jeez, uh, was that five? That might have been five. <laughs> I, think, I think it was five. Yeah, I think we could probably go all day. Um, and then, what's next for you, man? Like, what? What do you like? If there's a project that you can get your hands on now that you've done this, you know, Winchester Mystery House, what's the next, you know, story that you would love to 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 get your hands on? Is there anything else out there, or was this kind of like the the catalyst? I the pinnacle. I was th I was thrilled to 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 be able to work with Winchester Mystery House because I was I was already really familiar with with the house and history and uh, and that was amazing um, and it definitely um, it's looking like this first miniseries will be really uh, as being really well received the pre-orders are looking fantastic so um, we are likely going to be doing a volume two next year so I'll be coming back and writing three more issues for that and if people really dig it and they want more. Um, I have uh, a volume three loosely plotted out as well uh, for the following year. So I can keep that going for a while, but um, otherwise uh, there's some of my own stories. I want to get back to, um, we took uh, a novella that I wrote um, called rampant out of print and uh, I'm going to re-release it as, but I'm going to beef it up. I, a lot. I got a copy of that. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to be beefing it up and I'm not adding, um, some new chapters to it and then we'll we'll do a re-release sometime next year of that and then i have um i have another story that i outlined recently that i i'm on the fence uh as to whether or not it'd be best as as a comic book miniseries or or as a novel and um it's pretty visual so i'm, I'm leaning towards comic books but honestly I'd, I'd be happy with seeing it go either way um but after that i'm uh, there's lots of IPs out there I'd love to, to to try out. You know, there's lots of good horror IPs I'd love to get my hands on. There's constantly great filmmakers just, you know, doing cool new things that I'm like, oh, this would be fun if I had a comic book. Um, so I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be more. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I'd like to thank you for, for coming on the show. Um, you know, you're my first guest, um, so I, I really appreciate it. That was actually, I mean, I'd learned a lot about Winchester Mystery House. That's really cool. I'm going to probably head up to San Jose, maybe this, this Halloween season and try to, try to get in there, get a tour. Awesome. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. You kind of got me pretty interested in, in, in checking it out, but where can everybody get your books? Where can everybody find you? Yeah. So um, you can find me on, on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and TikTok at Joshua Frantic, all one word. And then also source point press all over the internet. You can find usually, you can reach me through all the source point press avenues as well. Um, and then October 27th, Winchester mystery house, number one will hit shops. If you're worried about getting your hands on one, because final order cutoff is happening in uh, just a few days uh, next week. Um, you can always pre-order it at sourcepointpress.com uh, to guarantee a copy before it sells out. 
it's gonna be it's gonna be big it's looking like so pretty excited yeah i'm, I'm, I'm gonna get my copy for sure you you sold me you sold me sir <laughs> <laughs> well, i appreciate you coming on josh and I, I hope you have a good rest of your day um and if you guys liked uh hearing more about josh or hearing josh's story here and want to listen to uh, more authors tell their stories feel free to subscribe to this channel thanks everybody